you would open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11. As we're continuing in our series, uh, the writer striving to uh, give his readers great encouragement and hope, and uh, we're going to be looking at the the first three verses here, but I'd like to begin uh, verse 32 of chapter 10. Verse 32 of chapter 10. Let's give our attention to God's God's word. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, uh, as the believers addressed here in the first century uh, needed to be encouraged and strengthened in their faith, Lord God, so do we. And we thank you that your word and spirit are sufficient for the task. I pray, God, that you would uh, then uh, draw our attention to Christ and his word and, and the truth that we have revealed here for our blessing, our edification, for our faith. Draw us to faith, deep faith in Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. I'd like to start this morning by uh, asking you a question. Uh, how's your faith life? And um, by that, I don't mean how are your devotions. Uh, That's often maybe what we would assume and what you might begin talking about. And uh, that's not what I mean. What I mean to ask is, uh, what are the things that you believe in and how do those things actually impact your life? How's your faith life? It's something maybe we don't think about that often. If I ask you, how's your marriage, you'd be able to... uh, Pretty quickly, give me a few things, um, pros and cons or whatever, things you're encouraged by or discouraged by. You think about those things. If I asked you about your financial life, the same thing. You'd be able to tell me uh, with some detail if, you're, uh, if you felt comfortable doing that uh, about your financial situation. You think about those things. Well, the writer uh, to the, the Christians here in the, in the first century, 
He wants them to think about their faith life. Specifically, he wants them to think about, consider, what do they actually believe and how is that faith actually functioning in their life? Uh, Because uh, he recognizes that uh, they do have faith. Verse 39, we're we're confident um, that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. They have faith. But the, the question he has is, is that, is that faith really functioning? Is that faith active and dynamic? You see, it, he has the sense that it's not functioning as it once had. Back in the days when they had been persecuted, their faith had been robust and evident as they even were able to uh, joyfully accept the, the plundering of their property. But now they've grown, they've grown dull of hearing. He's, he's talked about that. Uh, their faith has become a bit lethargic. The heartaches of life and, and the, the hardness that comes because of sin has made their faith a bit lethargic and lifeless. It lacked power in, in their life. Have you ever uh, gone into a, uh, maybe you're on vacation and you, uh, you entered into a church you'd never been before, but you walked in and the overwhelming experience was lifelessness. I remember preaching at a church like that. I will not mention the church. But um, when I got up in the pulpit, I was, the whole service, I didn't lead the service, um, but when I got in the pulpit, I just Ezekiel speaking to the valley of dry bones. I mean, that, that sort of thing is what, that, that, that must be what it felt like. It's just, just lifeless. No expectation at all uh, that, that there, anything meaningful was happening. No, no eagerness, uh, no, no anticipation for God or for what he might do or no sense of deep need for him. Just lifeless. Well, if, if we stepped into your, into your uh, Christian life and examined your faith life, is that what we would find? Just listlessness. Just going through the motions. That might be you this morning. No expectations of God, no anticipation for, for what he could do and might do even for you. you. You have faith, you believe the Bible, you believe the gospel, but all the vibrancy, all the, the transforming power of it has, has left the building. Is that, is that your situation this morning? And it can be for all of us. Our sins are are mighty and, and can be just weighty and overwhelming at times. And, and the trials that we go through, the, the, the heartache can be so devastating. And the loneliness or the loss, whatever it might be, can, can just rob the, our faith of its vitality and joy. Well, Hebrews 11 is written for people like us. It's written for real Christians, not pretend Christians who are living in the reality of this very world and, and seeking to, to live for Christ, but it's hard. And so the writer wants to remind them of the critical importance of a robust, vital faith, that all the joy and peace that we receive from God comes by believing, Romans 15, 13. And so we have Hebrews 11. It's been, as you know, maybe uh, it's, um, it's called the Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11, as uh, the writer lays before us character from Old Testament after character. All the, these old saints, this parade of, of um, saints of old who 
lived by faith. And before we get into chapter 11, just, just to remind us of what is the reader, what's he trying to do here? He's, he's, do, he's doing two things in chapter 11. The first thing he's doing is he's giving us examples to emulate. In, uh, in chapter 6, verse 12, uh, he had urged his readers, we want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Uh, you see, the power of an example is, it's not that you, act, you really learn something new, something that you hadn't known before. What, the power of an example is in seeing something that you knew intellectually actually fleshed out in real life, in real practice. So maybe you've read a, a marriage book, and it was a good marriage book, but, but then you saw an example of a good marriage. You saw how a, a man actually lovingly treated his wife and how she responded in, in love and respect to her husband, and, and by seeing it, everything that you read about in the book now suddenly comes into full color. And you're able to imitate. You have a vision now, you see, for, for what, how this actually works. And that can be true for all sorts of things, for, for godly parenting, for just joyful um, perseverance in faith in the midst of hard times. Isn't it true that when you've come to a hard time that you've thought about other saints who were examples to you of, of how to walk through that trial with joy and faith in God? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11... The writer just lays out before his readers a whole panoply of these saints, an entire chapter of people who lived by faith, and he says, imitate them. But that's only one reason. There's, there's one other reason here, a, um, and that is to simply teach them and us the principle of faith, the principle of living as God's people. All the stories we have here in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. He's going to talk about Abel. He's going to talk about Enoch. And he's going to talk about um, Abraham. And uh, just going to list saint after saint. But all the stories, all the saints, it all, they all point to this one basic principle that God's people are defined by, live by faith. And that by faith, they are caught up into God's great redemptive drama and gain the promised rewards. Every story in Hebrews 11 has that, has that basic message that God's people live by faith. By faith, they're caught up in God's redemptive drama. And by faith, they gain God's promised reward. That's, that's the point. Um, see, it's not that. You could, if you just said these are people to imitate, you could say, well, that's, that's not really that encouraging to me. I mean, for crying out loud, it's Abraham. How am I supposed to be like Abraham? I'm not Abraham. Well, that's true. But you see, Abraham is not held up as a great success story. Abraham was a deeply flawed man. Uh, all of these saints were flawed people. They're not held up as people who somehow figured out the secret of getting it right. These are people who rather came to realize by the grace of God that God is reliable, that God is trustworthy, and that you can actually take him at his word. 
And as they did that, as they took God at his word in the midst of trial, in the midst of their own flawed uh, reality in person, but, but as they lived by faith, they manifest their, des- their identity as the people of God and gained their destiny as the heirs of a promised land. And so that's the point of Hebrew chapter, Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11. And it's why the writer begins as he does. Because if we're going to talk about faith, we have to define our terms. And that's precisely what the writer is doing here in verses 1 through 3. What is faith? This morning, uh, if you have your outline, you'll notice we're first going to see what faith is. And then where faith looks, uh, what faith knows and finally, what faith receives, and we're going to just, that last point is going to be very brief because we'll be dealing with that more as we move forward. <clears throat> but first, what faith is. Now, faith is, it's very helpful, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Uh, last Sunday, uh, our intern, Nick Thompson, did a um, helpfully explained that Christian hope is a neglected doctrine in the church. We don't talk about our hope and, uh, and encourage one another in our hope as we, as we ought. Uh, what, what you find here in the book of Hebrews is uh, the writer constantly talking about uh, hope. Uh, in fact, hope and faith are just entwined in a way that they can't be extricated from one another. They're they're completely uh, bound up together. So the writer says in Hebrews chapter 3, 6, uh, we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Chapter 10, 23, he's just told them, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. We would say the confession of our faith. He says the confession of our hope. It's the, it, two sides of the same coin. They are in, in, uh, inextricably intertwined. And so, um, as he now talks about faith, he's going to go to hope. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, there's two different ways of, of taking that phrase. Commentators have gone both ways, and they're both helpful uh, and, I think, insightful. So I'm going to just briefly deal with both of them. The first way <laughs> is to think of the writer as speaking of faith as an objective something that you have. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so the first way is thinking of faith as an objective something that you have. And the reason the, the uh, commentators will go here is because the word assurance is a, uh, it acts in the Greek as a legal, it was a legal, a legal term for a, a, a document, a legal document that proved you owned something. We would call it a title. If you buy a vehicle, uh, you don't just get the vehicle, you get, the, you get a title, which is a legal document which proves that you own the vehicle. Well, uh, in, in, uh, in the old times, the, the Greeks would have a thing called uh, an assurance. If you had a piece of property, you would get papers with that property. And there would be a man in town who held these papers, but that paper stood as the assurance that you were the rightful owner of said property. So when the writer says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, objectively speaking, he says your faith, this objective reality, this thing that you have, faith is the title deed of things hoped for. Well, what are the things hoped for? Well, ultimately, we're going to see in chapter 11, the things hoped for is a better country, a new heaven and earth, a city from, with foundations whose builder and maker is God. 
In other words, if you are a Christian, and don't let this just fly over your head. If, if you're a Christian, that means that there is property in the new heaven and new earth with your name on it. You, ha- you have an address in eternity. It's real. And the writer then you would be saying that your faith, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that your faith is the, the title deed of that property. It is the proof, you see, that, that you, you have ownership in the new heaven and the new earth. And that one day you're going to actually lay hold of it. Yeah, thank you so much, Sean. I think that's pretty encouraging. Do you have faith? Well, faith, would, writer would be saying then, is, is evidence. Saving faith is the thing that you have. I have faith in Jesus Christ. I, I believe that he died for me. I believe that his righteousness stands, uh, covers all of my sin and stands as my righteousness. And that means, you see, that's a title deed to my future inheritance. It's, it's proof of ownership. That's one way to read it. Very helpful, encouraging. Another way to read it, uh, more commonly and, and, um, help, and also helpfully, is to see the writer speaking of faith subjectively. In other words, what faith feels like, how faith acts, what it lays hold of, what it does. So, so the point he would be making when he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen, he's, he's reminding us that biblical faith is not an intellectual assent to truths. Even if they're perfectly good biblical truths. But a biblical faith is an assurance. It's a conviction that those things are true. So um, Hughes says in his commentary, that faith is not a static emotion of complacency, but something lively and active. It's not just a state of immovable dogmatism, but it is a vital certainty which impels the believer to stretch out his hand and lay hold of those realities on which his hope, on which his hope is fixed. Things, though unseen, which are already his in Christ. So faith, you see, is is a conviction of things unseen. The conviction that those things unseen are mine in Christ. Now, if you haven't been paying attention the last 10 years, there's been a lot of talk in the church about faith, particularly with the emergent church, which is sort of just a uh, renewed uh, emphasis of of liberal themes. And the, the idea when it comes to faith is that authentic faith doubts. And so men are applauded when they say, I don't know what we mean when we say the word God. I don't know, I don't know what we mean uh, when, when we, when we uh, talk about certain doctrines. We need to recognize that all we're really doing is just using phrases to talk about our experiences, but, but doubt is at the essence of Christian faith. Well, that's, that's just silliness. Completely contrary to the word of God. You'll never find that in scripture. Jesus doesn't say, only doubt. He says, only believe. Well, what is faith? Well, we're told what faith is. 
It's an assurance about things hoped for. It's a conviction about things not seen. And I know convictions are not sort of in the order of the day. We're supposed to be more humble than that. Well, it's not humble to doubt the word of God. That's pride. That's pride. Faith is a conviction. It's an assurance. It's a confidence. It's a certainty concerning what God has said and what God has promised. That's what faith is. Secondly, where faith looks. Faith has an orientation. It has a, is at a, it has a direction, something in view. It, is, uh, it looks towards these th- things hoped for and things unseen, things that are not yet here. Again, you'll find this throughout the New Testament. But uh, he's, he's, just, he's just helping us to get a handle on what, what Christian biblical faith, what it, what it looks like. Now, we talked uh, last week or so about the, uh, the object of faith. It was last week, Sunday night. That Christ is the object of saving faith. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe that God raised him from the dead. And Paul says, if you believe those things, you confess those things, you're saved. That's the object of Christian faith. But the orientation of Christian faith is our future with Christ. That's the orientation. We stand on what Christ has accomplished. We believe the gospel, which are the, the, the good, it's the good news about the things that happened to Jesus, things that Jesus accomplished for us. We look to that, we stand on that, but we take that then, and faith grabs those things and looks to all that Christ has promised for what is yet to come. So Peter says, 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's future-oriented, and it's future-oriented because the gospel is future-oriented. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we have come to believe in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If you, if you believe in Jesus because of things that you think Jesus can accomplish for you in this passing world, and that's all it is for you, health, wealth, gospel preachers, No one should be more pitied than you. Because that isn't why Jesus came. It's not why he died. It's not why he rose again. Why did Jesus die? Why did he rise again? Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, 24, the prayer that he prays to the Father, immediately before going to the cross, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's what Jesus was after. That one day you, man, man, woman, child, made of dust, that one day you will be with him where he is, and one day you will see his glory. That's why he died. And so you see, faith then is oriented to that which Christ desires. And that's what you find here in in Hebrews chapter 11. These saints of old, their faith, you see, had an orientation. Abraham, verse 10, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He uh, talks about the patriarchs, verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country, That is a heavenly one. 
Verse 26, Moses considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. That's the orientation of biblical faith. It's looking forward, it's looking forward, it's looking forward. And it's precisely, you see, that future orientation that empowers and transforms the way we live in this world. That had been the experience of these early Christians. Remember in verse 24, that which we read previously, 1024, where, where the writer says that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, which is so contrary to the way we think and, and, and the culture in which we live. How could you possibly joyfully accept the plundering of your property? Well, the writer tells us it's, it's, they did that because they knew they had better possessions and abiding possessions. Faith looks forward and because it is convinced about things yet to come and and things unseen, that knowledge has the power to transform the way we live. That, that has the power to break us free from the grip of materialism. To break free from the grip of eroticism. Where you begin to see that the things that have been promised to you, the things that are yours in Jesus Christ, are of greater value than your car, than your house, than your vacations. Greater value than a sexual experience. And in, in, in fact, it, that is the power, you see, of faith to transform us. Well, how do you know all this is true? This is where it gets really good. Hebrews verse, uh, 11, verse 3. What faith knows? What faith knows? Verse 3 is a wonderful definition of the knowledge of faith, but, but you have to just, I think, pay attention a little bit to, to try to track what, where he's going here. Maybe you've wondered, I have, why does he suddenly jump to Genesis 1? Why are we suddenly talking about creation? For the whole book, he's been talking about Jesus. He starts with Jesus. Every chapter is about Jesus, about the, Jesus, the, the, the greater Moses. First of all, he's, be, he's greater than the angels. Then he's a better Moses. He's better than, than the Levites. He's a, a superior priesthood. He offers a superior sacrifice. It's been Jesus, 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 creation. Why? Well, some commentators have, uh, have taken this as an opportunity to expound on uh, the importance of the doctrine of creation. And it certainly is an essential doctrine. It's a foundational doctrine, right? Christians believe on the basis of God's word <clears throat> that this world, it didn't just happen by Darwinian chance, but God commanded and it was so. That it exists by the direct divine command of God. And that's, that's foundational. You see, that means, among other things, that Christianity is not one uh, item among many items on the buffet table of religions. Just um, trying to offer our particular truths, our religious wares, so that it might be attractive in the, in the marketplace of religious ideas. 
The doctrine of creation undercuts all of that. Either the God of Scripture created this world and it's His, or He did not create the world and it's not. This is not hard to understand. Either He did or He didn't, and if He did, it makes all the difference. Then you actually are living in God's world. It's not yours. You actually have been made by the hand of God. You don't belong to you. You are made in his image. You have a calling by the God who created you to live for his glory. It makes all the difference. But it's not what he's about here. So why is he talking about it? See, if, if that was his point, he would go on and he would expound that point exactly the way he expounds the point about Jesus throughout the whole book. So what's he doing? He's talking about what faith knows, what faith understands. See, by faith we understand that faith has a knowledge and an insight. The word understand here can be translated to perceive, to gain insight. It's like if if someone lets you in on a secret, something that you kind of had heard about, you heard rumors about it, but somebody took you in the inside and told you the whole truth, suddenly now you've gained a new perspective, you've gained a new insight. You know something now. Faith brings us into the circle of God's knowledge, in a sense, the mysteries of the gospel. One of those mysteries is the nature of faith itself. So by faith, we get an understanding into what faith is. We get, we get this insight. We perceive something that is really true. And, and what we get, what we gain insight into is the, found in the second part of the verse here. We understand that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now that might not seem very radical. But again, follow his point. Faith understands that simply because things are not seen does not mean that they're not real. Many people throughout time have suggested exactly the opposite. They say that, uh, if you want me to believe, show me. Where's the proof? Seeing is believing. I need to see with my own two eyes. What does Thomas say? Don't ask me to believe about a resurrection of Jesus unless you present a living body, his body, alive, and I can see the the marks and I can put my finger into the wounds. Don't ask me to believe unless I can see. Well, um, that's human nature, but it's, it's silly to say that we'll only believe things that we can see with our own two eyes. There's all sorts of things that you believe that you've never seen nor will. Uh, you, I, would, I would suggest most of you believe that uh, there was such a person as Alexander the Great. You've never seen him. You've never seen a photograph of him. So, so why do you believe that such a person existed? Well, because uh, you... You heard about it in school, and you've seen evidences, and you connected the dots, and it seems a plausible thing to believe. Well, that's exactly, you see, what's true for Christians. 
We don't, we don't believe things on the basis of sight with our own two eyes. We believe things on the basis of evidence, on the basis of connecting the dots. So we believe in unseen things, you see, because of evidence. That's what he's after here. What's the evidence that the writer wants you to see that, that roots and grounds your conviction of things unseen? The evidence, you see, of the evidence of a coming new creation. What is it? What does he point to? It's this creation. The, the evidence of a coming world is the reality and the presence of this current world. That's the point of verse 3. He's, he's proving the point that the unseen is not a barrier to what is and what will be. Do you want evidence? Look out the window. Everything you see currently in this creation was at one point unseen. All of it. And is now gloriously revealed. So what, was, what is currently seen, he says was not made out of things that are visible. This world didn't come to be by visible things. It was created by the Word of God. Why does he want us to see this? Because it is precisely the same concerning the world to come. The same principles apply. This world was once unseen and came into existence and sight by the mighty word of God and the exact same divine word that created this world is creating that world. It's the same principle. It's why he goes to it. This world doesn't exist because of visible things. It exists made out of invisible things, and so does the world to come. And so, that, so if you want evidence of that world, just open your eyes and look at the world that is. I mean, do you, do you see how reasonable it is to set your hope on what is yet to come? People protest that it's foolish to believe what can't be proven and what can't be, see, be seen. But you see, the, the principle of faith has already been proven. So what if the new heaven and the new earth can't be currently seen? So what? At one point, that was true of this world, and yet, here we are. By the divine word of God, and the word that created this world is creating that world. That means, friends, that, that if you want assurance of a new heaven and a new earth, open your eyes. The eyes that God has given you and see things then in faith. Do you believe that God made everything that's here? Do you actually believe that? Then why would there be any, any doubt whatsoever in our mind concerning what is yet to come? Every tree you see exists by the word of God. It was made out of things unseen. And yet there it stands as a testimony of the power of God and a testimony of what is yet to come. Uh, David writes in Psalm 19 that the heavens are telling the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they display knowledge. Well, what are they saying? What are they telling? They're telling the glory of a God who creates universes out of unseen things. And so, you see, they call us to a full assurance and a deep conviction that there is a new heaven and a new earth. That is just as real as the world you see today that exists by the power and promise of God. 
Now the question is, do you believe it? You see, it's just, it's just asking you, not just do you believe that God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, do you believe that in some intellectual way? Do you understand the staggering ramifications of that when it comes to the principle of faith? This world exists by the invisible divine word of God and so does the one that is to come. Do you see how reasonable that faith is? And are you then, you see, willing to, to, to have that conviction, that assurance? Do you understand, you see, that God has called us to glorious future things. And this is, this is a quickly passing temporary world that is going to erupt forth one day into glories that you cannot imagine, but you can sense them. Particularly if you are looking with the eyes of faith and the beauty that you see in a springtime, don't you sense that life is just waiting to explode in a new heaven and a new earth? You sense it in the brokenness of this world that this is not how it's meant to be. They're, they're, it was made to be different, better. And do you realize, you see, that by faith, do you believe that it's, it's all yours? Purchased by Christ, freely given to you by faith? Do you sense how... What a, what a profound conviction that, that we should have and we can't have. It, isn't this the faith that you want, friends? Do, do, you, do you want a, a, a faith that just sort of meanders and says, well, yeah, I, I believe that. I, but, but then there's this and it, it's saturated with unbelief and uncertainty. And wouldn't, wouldn't you want this conviction? This absolute certain conviction that if God said it, if God promised it, it is real. It's more real than, than my own being, right? Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's not going to pass away. Friends, that faith is is ours for the having, simply by accepting the evidence before you. The evidence in creation, the evidence in Christ. Why do we have such, such assurance and conviction of these things? Because we have a Jesus who's a, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek who offered up his body to atone for sin and to make all things new, and nothing will ever repudiate what he has done. I was reading a... Um, a book, uh, Sanctified by Grief, by Richard Baxter. It's a fascinating book. He, he, he writes this after his, his beloved wife died, Margaret. She was 15 years younger than he was, and, and yet the Lord took her first. And he found, after she had passed, he found all her, sort of her journal. He had never seen it before. And, uh, he, and he writes, um, publishes some of this in, in this book. And one of the things that he publishes in, in this book uh, is... Uh, her notes, because she struggled with, with assurance, and, and she has her notes taken from, apparently from one of his sermons. And this is, what, this is what he read. This is what she wrote. Why do you stand complaining while Christ stands entreating you to accept his mercy? 
as the ungodly cannot expect the grace they refuse, so how can you expect the peace which you oppose? Be convinced that Christ is yours if you accept him and consent. There's not some magical bar to jump over if you want to have deep faith. And if you complain, I just wish I had more faith, Margaret would say and Baxter would say, why do you stand complaining about your weak faith when Christ stands there entreating you to accept his mercy, to accept his word? And just as the ungodly cannot expect grace which they refuse, you see, so neither can you expect peace and assurance which you oppose by just saying, well, I just can't believe that. I can't believe that. No, you, you, Jesus says only believe. Be convinced that Christ is yours simply by confessing your sin and trusting in Christ. And if Christ is yours, then all of this is yours. Just believe that truth. Now you might say, well, but I can't yet. (laughs) Jesus says, look at the evidence. You have every reason to believe. Look at the evidence. If you're in doubt this morning, if you're kind of figuring these things out, that's fine. Just look at the evidence. Do the homework. Praying that God would give you eyes to see the truth. He promises he will if you ask. Now what will that do in your life? And we'll wrap with this. It's going to reorient your life. Because you see, if we are convinced that, that heaven actually is a reality that we are, we are rushing towards, 60 seconds a minute, if, and if that's the, the real thing, the glorious thing, the magnificent, majestic thing that Jesus Christ died to give us, it's going to reorient your passions. It's going to reorient your pursuits, your pleasures. You're going, to, you're going to realize that every, all the stuff that you have, none of it ultimately matters. And we can easily say that, you see, with our, with our mouth while we secretly are passionate about the things that we own. But, but once you realize this, it really is momentary and passing and, and that our treasures are what are eternal, it's going to reorient your life. This kind of faith will, will drive out fears. What do we have to lose if we have heaven to gain? If that's really what God has promised us, what do we have to lose? It'll produce endurance. Paul speaks of that specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Why? Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. So biblical faith will have these two convictions. A conviction about things that are seen are temporary. They're good, they're gifts, they're kindnesses, and yet they're temporary. But what is unseen? Well, that's eternal. That's lasting. That's forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. You see, this faith will produce that sort of peace and calm and endurance in the face of heartache and trial. As we have it, as we exercise it, as we hold this conviction. 
And fourth, finally, it'll please God and gain you his commendation. That's what the saints of old, that's how they received their commendation, verses 2. They received their commendation not by their good works, not by their their, uh, sacrificial efforts, not by their promises or their intentions. They received it by believing the word of God, and it was pleasing to the Lord. Without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please God. Nothing honors the Lord more than people who take him at his word. Say, Lord, you said it. You've manifested it in the things that you've made. I believe. Doesn't mean I don't have times of doubt, Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. But, Lord, I believe. It it honors God. When you are willing to simply take him at his word and accept and receive his word for you. And so, friends, that's the challenge we have here. Verses 1 through 3 are what faith is. My, my question for you as we wrap is, do you have that faith? And Is that the faith you hunger for? And whatever obstacles are in the way of that faith, that conviction, that assurance that is transforming your life and freeing you, freeing me, oh, let's pray together that God remove those obstacles. Let's confess the sin that stands in our way. The world is dying to see Christians that actually believe what they say they believe. And then have the courage to speak of that faith and, 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 and the ability and willingness by the Spirit of God to walk in that faith and to live for things that are eternal. When the world senses to the marrow of its bones that all this is passing away in futile and vain. May God grant that we be a people who believe. Who believe to the glory of God. Amen. God in heaven, Lord, we are... We're fickle in our faith. Lord, you know it's true. God, I thank you that you reveal that to us and you, you convict us for that fickleness. Why should we complain about our poor faith when we have so many reasons for great faith? And Father, I, I pray for those today who are considering the claims of Christ the truths of the word of God, maybe for the first time. Maybe, Lord, um, they've known these things for a long time, but it's never, it's never been real to them. I, I pray, Lord, this morning that they would sense the urgency of these things and the, the pure rational conviction that you are who you say you are and you've done what you've said you've done and the reasonableness of faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, for all of us, I pray that our faith would, would go deep and rich with conviction and assurance. Lord, we are afraid of things. We're afraid of being exposed when, when we have a robe of righteousness that covers us. We're afraid of loss when we have all of eternity freely given to us. We're afraid, Lord, of losing... Um, of losing things, and, and sometimes, Lord, those losses are painful, and yet, oh God, I thank you that whatever you take, you repay. It's not in this life, in the life to come, so that we can truly say they far away, the glory that we have in Christ far outweighs it all, but oh God, oh God I pray that, that you would help us in, in faith to have joy and peace in believing. 
We want that, oh God, for our own lives, a, a, a faith that purifies us and transforms us and frees us. And a faith, Lord, ultimately that will be commendable or you will commend us. You will commend us. What an astonishing thought. But, oh God, may it be true that we hear well done, good and faithful, believing servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.